There was a Joni Mitchell song. Yeah, a Joni Mitchell song that Janet Jackson once introduced me to. And Joni sang about how you don't know what you've got till it's gone. When I moved, see what I did there? When I moved to America and over the following 10 years of living there, to be without the public healthcare system in Australia really, really opened my eyes to how much of an incredible asset that is to our country. That the standard of care, which is available for those of us with the fewest resources, was equivalent to the kind of care that only some of the most wealthy people in the US could afford just absolutely blew my mind. But a part of protecting our public health system is to make it as efficient as possible to kind of watch out for wasteful spending and to be sure that the best outcomes can happen for the most amount of people at the lowest cost. It's not perfect by any stretch, but it is a superpower that we here in our country have and one that we should be very proud of. So how do you go about making things more efficient? How do we get better outcomes for people, particularly when it comes to mental health? Thankfully, my guest today, well, she happens to be an expert in these matters. Professor Judith Gulliver is the Deputy Head of School and Senior Director of Education in the School of Psychological Science at Monash University. And drawing on her time spent as a psychologist in rural Australia, Judith now works to make sure that the healthcare professionals entering the workforce are equipped with everything they need to help as many people as they can in the best and most efficient way possible. She's a truly fascinating person, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this, but first, here's some ads. As a psychologist, you'd hold an event in a pub and you'd invite the local farmers. A remote psychologist it really sounds like like that is the basis for an excellent sitcom <laughs> you don't have a treating room you actually you know sit sit out on a patio somewhere or <laughs> you drive out to a paddock <laughs> and you have a chat you know about what's going on your biggest stakeholders you know would be the partners the partners of the families that would instigate you know, help-seeking, especially if it got to a point that was worrying for the families. Just a very different way of working. That is Professor Judith Gulliver. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. G'day, thanks so much for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday, here to bring you something that'll make it better every single episode since 2013. Three times a week, we're here, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays with you. My name is Osher Ginsberg. I am a podcaster, TV host, electric vehicle charger upperer, spectacular suit owner, sore neck haver, and I'm glad you're here. We've got gigs on the way in Melbourne, links are on the way in the show notes. We're doing both podcast shows and comedy festival shows with the news show that we're doing, and you can find those links in the show notes. I'll get straight to Judith because she's great. Judith is an incredibly smart person, and just listening to the way that she's able to speak about how we just might be able to make things better in our healthcare system really gives me a lot of hope. 
I must say a big thank you to Monash University who are sponsoring this podcast. For more on that, have a look into the show notes. I'll put all the links you need to see there. Enjoy this conversation with Judith Gulliver. How are you today, Judith? You good? I'm going very good, thank you. How's it? Um, am I, can I call you Judith or could I have to call of you Professor? Course. No, just call me Judith. Does anybody call you Professor? Um, interesting. Not so much here in Australia, but definitely overseas, you get the prof. <laughs> oh, really? Absolutely. Yeah, we're very, we're very casual here in Australia. Oh, part of me wants to think that all of your long sleeve shirts have elbow patches. <laughs> well, when I did a stint in Oxford, maybe. They love it. They love the patch. <laughs> Why? What is it about a professor that requires my elbows? I see that much wear and tear. If I'm going to protect this cardigan, like what is a professor doing with their elbows? But watch this. Ah, uh, right. No, leaning, leaning on yeah, your desk. Leaning on your desk. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it wears holes in your precious right. tweed. Breath <laughs> of very precious tweed. <laughs> you work as the deputy head of school and um, the senior director of education in the School of Psychological Science. So that's a very long job that's title. Big mouthful. It you is. You work in education. You work in higher education. I work in higher education, but I'm also a psychologist. And I'm imagining to to keep the work in you know at the uni. You you keep. You know, you keep runs on the board as a as a psych. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I worked as a perinatal psychologist um, until July this year, and I just wound up the practice for a little while while we tried to implement some amazing changes in our courses here. But I certainly probably spent twenty years um, working in psychology, one way or another. I, I don't know enough about. Um, all Did- I know is. N- uh, Niku, I, I went. I hung um, out with a friend who is in Niku. Um, yeah. I don't, what's perinatal? So perinatal looks after mums from preconception all the way through till they're about the child's about four years of age. Wow. Um, yeah, and so we work with mums and bubs and families just to really look at that transition. You know, going into parenthood working with anxiety, depression. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that comes about from all the changes that a new mother and family experiences. Because it is, uh, it's extraordinary that in my lifetime, uh, humongous amounts of things have changed. You know, we can we can get upset and go, "Oh, we're cooked. The, house, the, the, the world is over. We're fucked." Da, da, da. It's like, wait, 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 wait. wait. Yeah. It's like, like, like in the last twenty years, how much has changed? How much has changed in the way we look at? I don't know people of uh, not white colour in Australia, w- women who yeah. aren't housewives, a smartphone. <laughs> but, so much. You know, it's like it is astounding how much. Yes. Things sometimes aren't great, but by golly, they're getting better. And certainly when it comes to infant mortality rates and certainly when it comes to the outcomes of mums who might um, get a terrible draw of the cards, um, because it's indiscriminate what happens. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it absolutely doesn't discriminate. You can, tri- yeah, yeah. And I just plain job, career, you, you could yeah. be accomplished, you could be in, you know, famous. Um, personality and mm. it, it doesn't prevent you from um, or protect you. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And so when you you worked in the um, when you were coming up, you worked in the in the public sector. 
I did. Didn't you? What's your um? What's your? Oh well, I've done time in the such and such and hospital <laughs> story. <laughs> well, I cut my teeth working in community health. Community health came about as a one-stop shop, um, not just about mental health. So, in community health, you you well, I'm thinking about the New South Wales experience here. You would often have, you know, your child maternal nurses, your sexual health clinics, alcohol and other drug clinics. You would um, have adult mental health, child and adolescent mental health. Um, You'd have your um, women's health nurse all under the one roof. And so for the community, they could enter these places. They were publicly funded, so people were not out of pocket, and they could see a whole range of different health professionals. and. The way that it worked is for the community members that would come in, their information, given their permission, would be shared. So they're not having to always retell their story. Um, And over time, particularly in mental health, we've seen such a rapid change since 2010 with the introduction of Medicare um, and the introduction of Medicare-funded sessions, if you like, to see a psychologist. And it's had a fundamental impact on our communities because we went from seeing psychologists in the public sector um, to now the majority of psychologists uh, work in a private setting Um, and they're funded through Medicare but you know Medicare services in this country we've spent about 1.6 billion on mental health services that are funded through Medicare Um, and that cost shifting has pretty much taken it out of the public sector. So we're seeing quite a different model of mental health services in this country. Yeah, I mean, well, there was a time when my mum did some locum work. Um, locum's a word for uh, filling in. Uh, it's, just, it's just a very medically word. It just means I'm filling in for someone. She did some <laughs> locum work out in, um, out in Mildura. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, she spoke... I mean, she was an anaesthetist who retrained as a GP and she spoke about, I I honestly, I I reckon sometimes the GPs get people like, yeah, well, they're not a specialist, are they? There's a person who's a specialist. Like, come on, that person gets to do, like, whether it be the, you know, my hip guy who's also my, you know, he's a knee guy, but it's like he basically deals with exactly the same part of the body with a very kind of similar cohort of the population every single time, whereas mum would show up and was like, oh, pediatrics, geriatrics, you know, substances, you know, psychology, like within an hour inside a 12-minute consult. It's a hugely challenging thing, let alone when you start putting, and to your experience where I'm going with this, let alone when you start putting distance between major hospitals and major healthcare services. Absolutely. Once we start getting out of, you know, the outer suburbs, past the ring road, you know, past where, you know, the bypass has gone, what's the ability to have this many healthcare professionals be on the ground? Is it, is it a pipe dream? Uh, look, it's challenging. I Believe it or not, I cut my teeth as a rural and remote psychologist um, and I used to do service provision, you know, two hours from, from your local regional centre in what, what was called like um, health hubs, if you like, but little centres that were like outreach posts. But you're, you've got a point, you know, because the further west you go, the less availability of services. But in, in this day and age and with the use of technology, with the use of dogs, um, apps, mm. there's no reason why we can't source services for families. 
I mean, the key to all of this are the principles of, of that wraparound care, and that is the family's voice and choice is absolutely integral um, to what they what they want to elect to work on. Um, the team it's team oriented, so you you know you bring family members, even sports coaches, social workers, anyone who's important. The plans personalised. But you can reach out. But yeah, rural, rural and remote areas, it's always been a struggle to access those health professionals there face to face. In your, you know, time when you, you said you cut your teeth in as a rural remote psychologist, um, I can't imagine uh, knowing, you know, the culture of um, uh, our country, probably when you started, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, what kind of state people might have been in by the time they got to you? Yeah. Over, over the course of your career, what is what's changed uh, when it comes to people you know, engaging with help-seeking behaviour in rural areas of our country? You know, I'll speak. I'll give you an example around young people. Most young people don't seek help. We, we, we're talking about quite a large number until they're at crisis point. That's been quite a significant statistic over a long course of time. What has changed, though, is as a community, we've become more open. You know, we have campaigns like Are You OK Day? You know, we've, we've made it permissive for people to ask that question, Are You OK? Uh, we've normalised people being able to talk about their mental health. You know, um, people like yourself, Osha, normalising that, you know what, it's OK when you're not okay to be able to talk about it, to spend $1.6 billion on mental health services through Medicare, that has blown out from when these items became available in 2010. I mean, that budget was blown out, I think, three times what the government expected people to spend. And it was often um, people who had not accessed services when it first came out who were actually seeing psychologists. So we've made it okay to seek help and therefore we've seen this rise in prevalence rates of depression and anxiety. Um, And that could be a function of us being able to now talk about it more openly and to seek help more earlier. It's not like states of anxiety and depression are worse than they ever were. It's just more people are showing up. And so therefore we've got more on the books than we ever had. And we've got better psychological literacy. Right. You know, we, we're teaching psychological literacies at school, at universities, in workplaces. I mean, some of the biggest companies now actually have um, wellbeing specialists as part of their executive team because mental health wellbeing has become a huge, huge issue and focus for organisations. You know, in terms of productivity and cost to business, you know, having a mentally health, healthy workplace is um, in the interest of, of whatever organisation it is, but it's also ethically sound <laughs> to make sure the people that work for you um, are mentally well. I wouldn't want you to disclose anything about a particular, yeah. uh, anything identifiable about a client, <laughs> but I'm fascinated. Yeah. Like a, a, a remote psychologist, it really sounds like, like that is the basis for an excellent sitcom. Like, come on, what <laughs> what kind of stuff are you dealing with and what part of the country were you in? 
Uh, so I was in a, in a, a rural part of um, New South Wales, let's uh-huh. just say. Yeah. Um, and look, the presentations, you know, were, were varied, particularly in the time that I spent working there. If you overlay drought on top of that and the everyday stresses that um, an event like drought causes for families um, can be quite significant. You know, and but the way you work as a psychologist is very different too. You know, you might actually go out to farms and homes and you you don't have a treating room. You actually, you know, sit sit out on a patio somewhere or <laughs> you drive out to a paddock <laughs> and you have a chat, you know, about what's going on. There were even events held in pubs, you know, where as a psychologist, you'd hold an event in a pub and you'd invite the local farmers um, and they would come and they would come and have a chat and you'd do a little presentation and everyone then could have a have a talk about it. Um, and your biggest stakeholders, you know, would be the partners, the partners of the families that would instigate, you know, help-seeking, especially if it got to a point that was worrying for the families. Just a very different way of working. So it sounds delightful. I'm going to kind of go and have a cup of tea sitting on a paddock with a bloke called Mal. And, uh, you know. (laughs) It's ethically challenging too because, you know, as a psychologist, you're bound to keep that person's um, stories confidential. Yeah. But working as a rural psychologist raises raises challenges on how you do that, you know, to keep their confidentiality but also keep them safe. Right, because uh, I'm imagining you were living in amongst these communities. Right. And so well, would people right. give you a side eye at the groceries when you were trying <laughs> to get your shop, shopping done? I'll actually tell you a funny story. I was, I was running a, a parenting group at one stage and it was all around toddler taming. And I finished work late and I picked up my, my then- four-year-old son and we were all tired anyway my four-year-old son was screaming up and down the <laughs> the shopping aisle skidding on his knees having having a wow of a time and I felt eyes looking at me and I turned around and there were two mums out of my parenting group looking around the corner <laughs> thinking I wonder what she's going to do about <laughs> about this behavior <laughs> So you you know you're very um, you're very exposed. <laughs> well, uh, look, I don't know if you've heard of the concept of modelling, but there would have been a great modeling. opportunity there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Just come on, how about you help me pick some things off the shop and keep you distracted? <laughs> Let's oh, give you man. some jobs to do. <laughs> and oh. there's a chalky at the end. <laughs> there is the always the chalky at the end. <laughs> That's a wow. That's a that's a pressure that most people would never have in their day to day job, um, and particularly when you're living with the, you know, the intense uh, observance and no. you know the, the shoulder. Certainly, when you're living among the community in such a tight knit yeah. community, you're being a community so exposed. Member. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 really well. We would have learned a lot pretty quickly. <laughs> Well, put it this way, you know, barbecues were always fascinating <laughs> mm. because it's akin to someone speaking with the with the GP going, I've got this rash on my on my elbow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit the same as a psychologist that someone might bail you up and want to have a chat about 
you know, someone that they're worried about or themselves. And it's just so hard because you've got to put boundaries in place and say, you know, this this is something I can definitely talk to you about. But, you know, perhaps tonight's not the night. Now's not the time, mate. Now is now is not the time. <laughs> There's two times in my life when I've faced like a very significant health challenge. One was a mental health challenge and one was a physical yeah. health challenge, which ended up, you know, impacting my mental health significantly. But on both those times, I really I don't know, maybe it was because I grew up with my folks and heard them, how they managed cases with the other specialists that they worked with, heard that, like, it's more than one person that gets this person better. Um, That's right. And so I sought out a psychiatrist as well as a psychologist. I had both these guys, you know, you know, talking to each other about, you know, what was going on and in contact, the three of us were in contact, because where are we now, where do we want to get to? Yeah, and we all work together. And similarly, when I got into trouble um, w- with my hip and everything, oh, there was a, a pain psychologist, there was a physiotherapist, there was yeah. a lead doctor. Like there was like so many people. And you know, if it was a film, like I, I guess I was the executive producer, but you know, my wife was definitely co-producer because she was, <laughs> she was. I was like, you need to go and talk to your shrink about blah. It's like okay, yeah. Well, it's it's not everyone's like lucky. No one's like no one's everyone's lucky enough to kind of have that idea of like I've kind of have to advocate for myself in many ways. That's exactly right. You know, there's a saying: it takes a village to raise a child. I think it takes a village for all of us, to be honest. But in these kind of wraparound models, it's intentional, and that's the difference. Um, It's intentional in that you you would have a care coordinator who would help you as an individual know who your who your team or who your village is going to be. Um, without that support, it can be really hard. And so services can be fragmented. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, we've, we've got a child in a school who's um, displaying significant emotional and behavioural um, characteristics, if you like. The teacher might refer that child to a counsellor the counsellor might refer that child to a paediatrician. The paediatrician might refer that child back to an external psychologist. Um, the teachers are involved, but no one's talking to each other. And so it becomes quite fragmented. And sometimes that story is retold to every person that you work with. The goals can be different for each of the um, treating team. You know, there's no control for that family. Whereas these wraparound models, is about, as you were saying with your own experience, it's bringing people together so that we all know what we're doing, but it's being driven by the family and their goals and the person's goal. Having everything together, um, it might sound ex- like it sounds expensive, having five separate people all working on the one person, but in my time, you know, in the mental health space and the advocacy space, I get the feeling that we wouldn't be doing that. We have a public health system. Like, we wouldn't be doing this if this didn't save us money in the long run. Oh, absolutely. It actually reduces the financial burden on, on families, to be quite honest, because whether a person sees all these professionals independently um, or together, there's there's actually savings to be made where you've, we've got the team all talking together so there's not duplication of services. We, we all know working with that family what's important to them. 
So it's actually more accessible, you know, particularly families from low socioeconomic groups where they're not having to, you know, chase specials. If they can source support in lots of different avenues, it's actually more, you know, more affordable to them, if you like. We hear a lot in, uh, I mean, you, you work in higher education. You, yeah. We hear a lot about uh, skill shortages in our country, well, particularly true. in like engineering and, and, and things like this. And well, do we bring more people in? Do we, you know, push more, you know, this? Do we push more nursing? Do we push more teaching? When it comes to, you know, planning a curriculum or, you know, you work at a, a big university that says a lot of money at stake uh, and you want to do the right thing and you want to be sure that people have a, a degree that does the job, you know, helps them, you know, you don't mm-hmm. want to not use your degree. Um, when it comes to looking down the road, what kind of work do you do there to make sure that the kind of courses you're offering make sure that the students who are coming through now will, you know, be, be ready for what's happening in the world in a couple of years from now? We, we have got a responsibility to make sure that our graduates are work ready. So we have a responsibility to make sure that when students are studying with us, they develop the knowledge and the skills, but more, more importantly, also the capabilities yeah. that are going to prepare them, you know, to go out there in the world of work. Um, it really is a lot about how you design your programs, what your course learning outcomes are, the different units of study um, that you develop to ensure that they meet that, but also authentic assessments. You know, how do we prepare our students through their assessments um, in working with members of the community? And Mm. whilst the good old essay and lab reports are at the cornerstone of a psychology degree, we're now really challenging ourselves to find different ways of assessing student competence that enables them to go out and and work with the public and also what are you teaching your students as part of the curriculum there's a cynicism about people who might chase down uh i don't know cardiology or orthopedics because that's the quickest place quickest route from here to a to a boat um which i get you know if you're just getting money out of your job and that's what you're doing for your job um the money might be fine for a while, but soon enough, it's going to really annoy you. You got to like why you you got to know why you're doing it. You got to like why you're doing it. Yeah. And at the kind of the money end of medicine, which is like you know hip prosthetics, and I've had three, so I know they're expensive things. You know, there's that. There's like you know the orthopedic surgeon going on holiday and you know skiing in Austria every year, that kind of thing. And then there's you know. These are people, uh, you know, wearing a boiler suit, driving an ambulance six days a week um, for an hourly rate. They yeah. both work in healthcare. Do you see the the why uh, that people show up with to be common oh, across the, the, yeah. the disciplines? It's very, it's, you know, we used to say vocation-based. Mm. You know, people have this desire to help others, to work with others, to give back to the community. It's the same in nursing in teaching, in psychology, in social work, in OT, I can name a heap of disciplines where you would have, you know, young students coming in, you know, when they finish their uh, year 12. We're also seeing, though, Osha, really interestingly, you know, people coming back for a second career or a third career wanting to retrain because suddenly they don't want to be in these jobs that are not giving them life satisfaction 
and they're wanting to give back to their community. So they come back into retrain. Um, and so we as a university, I believe, have an obligation to make it accessible. You know, we need to enable people who come back for second careers flexibility in the way they study, uh, mm-hmm. flexibility in the way they engage, have all the support services to help them succeed. But here's the thing, that person wearing the so-called boiler suit, we don't want them going into the industry and they're never being supported. You know, we've got to make sure that for those people that are, you know, frontline workers, that we support them, that they stay up to date, that they remain with their professional development, they have access um, to support services for themselves because the risk of burnout in frontline workers is huge. So how do we as a community protect them and work with them so that they don't become tired um, they don't become disillusioned um, and they continue loving their job and they continue loving what they're doing. When you were in, uh, you know, day-to-day psychology practice and, you know, still in your psychology practice, what do you get out of your work? I still think I have the passion to help others. To me, there's nothing more um, gratifying for me as a professional when I see someone who has come in to start working with me in a state of distress, not quite knowing what to do about their state of distress and the impact that is having on their life, whether it's within their family, at work, just being able to function every day can be so challenging. And to know that you're working with that person so they become the author of their own destiny and books. That's our job is to make ourselves redundant. We're there to help people learn the skills necessary so that if they, for example, if they suffer from anxiety or depression, that they themselves know how to how to work with their depression, with their anxiety, um, so that they can manage it. May not be able to cure it but they can certainly manage it, they can get on top of it and they can live a full, healthy, happy, productive life. But our job is to give them the skills and actually make ourselves redundant. And when you do that, for me as a professional, um, that's, that's what I find most gratifying. You spent uh, a lot of your career in, as you said, in uh, r- rural areas and you spent a lot of your career in education. Yeah. Um, we are incredibly lucky in our country to have a public health system, astoundingly oh. fortunate. Yeah. Um, and every system has its, has its compromises, you know, because you you've just got to try to do the best you can do with the budget you've got to help the most amount of people. Unfortunately, the budget's never going to be enough and there's always going to be people that don't have enough care. That is the unfortunate part of that yeah. model. But it's better than every single other option, you know, if you look around the world. When you when it comes to mental health, particularly with mental health, what are the what are the challenges that we face in our country when it comes to the public health system? Well, actually having enough having enough practitioners to service the needs of the community. It really is as simple as that. Um, if we look at the profession of psychology, it takes six years to train someone to become a psychologist before they're actually working with the community. Six years. Now, not only does it take six years, 
to become a psychologist in this country, you have to do postgraduate training. So you do an undergraduate degree, which goes for four years. And then from undergraduate to postgraduate study, there's a bottleneck. It's very difficult to go from an undergraduate degree into a postgraduate degree because um, it's so competitive. You know, so we're not seeing that flow and effect. In psychology, I'm only talking about, yeah. And then, of course, once we get them working in the community, you know, those positions are so scarce for the community to access because a lot of psychologists will go work in a private practice, which is great. There's no, there's no, um, there's no criticism with that. But it just means that for those psychologists that actually work in the community, particularly those psychologists with general registration, the kind of funding for clients is, is just not enough. It's not enough. And so you're not, you're, you're seeing increased gaps for some members of our community to go and see those psychologists because the Medicare rebate for clients is not enough and it doesn't sustain psychologist practice, you know. And then, of course, you've got this bottleneck, so you're not producing enough psychologists. So we need to look at a different workforce and a different model of workforce where we can say, hang on, we've got psychology graduates that have done a four-year degree. It's an accredited degree. What could we be doing differently with those graduates? Could these graduates be the coordinators in this wraparound model of care? But we need to have the conversation. Who's going to fund these places? In my time of, um, you know, kind of speaking outwardly around things like mental health or speaking about climate, if I ever go down the ideological model or the ideological argument, it tends to never really cross a, a divide of, of ideology. But if we, as, you know, harsh as it may sound, if we talk about money, that seems to be a thing, a language that most people understand. Yeah. And if, certainly if we're talking about things that are publicly funded, is there any research or is there any data at all that can talk to the, you know, the significant, like, like the impact of an investment into, say, for example, retention in high school or prison recidivism or, or even just, you know, crime in an area? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of research, Osha, that shows that if you can invest in mental health services for people um, and you can keep them working in the community longer, um, that if you, if you just crassly want to talk about uh, productivity, um, it actually increases the productivity of individuals. I mean, the number of days lost from people not being able to attend work because they are experiencing um, a mental health condition actually impacts. It impacts on the community. It impacts on having enough employees delivering whatever service it is in whatever organisation. Um, it, ha- it actually has a huge impact in this country, you know. So you're actually investing in mental health. When we talk about funding, it's actually about investing. It's investing in your community members to be well, to be really well. And really what we should be doing is we've got, you know, 15 million people that are well. And then as you slowly start to move up the, you know, burden of, of disease model, you start to look at those numbers, you know, for example, 5.9 people in the community might be at risk of developing 
um, a mental health disorder. Now, imagine if you can target even half of those people, you know, and then at the mild end, so we have 2.3 million Australians that have um, a mild mental health disorder, a moderate we've got 1.2 million, and then at the severe end, you're looking at about 800,000. And our presentations often don't occur till they're severe or moderate. Can you imagine if we were able to work with the population, the 5.9 million people that were at risk, the, the impact that that would have on further down the chain of those people not developing mild, moderate or severe conditions is huge. It's huge. But at the moment, we're so reactive. Just a moment away from Judith to say that if you like the show, if it brings you some value, please do share it with other people. I don't know if you're someone who's thinking about studying some more or there's someone in your life who's thinking about studying some more, please pass it over to them. Please like and rate and subscribe and say things, good, nice things, bad things, I don't care, wherever you can. We have a mailing list, which you can find in the show notes, and as well, tickets to the live shows. We're doing two gigs in Melbourne, podcast gigs in Melbourne um, on the 22nd of February. It's a Thursday night. Sam Wood is one of our guests. The other guest is uh, Super Special Secret, but we're just having to wait for other stakeholders involved before we can say their name out loud. And the uh, other gigs we're doing in Melbourne are towards the end of March. We're doing the news show at the Comedy Festival again. We had such an amazing time. We did 10 shows. Nearly 2,000 people saw the gig. It was freaking awesome. We'd love to see you there. Tickets are available in the show notes, so get among that. We're back in a minute with Professor Judith Gallifer. You're on a, a university campus, which is um, at the same time the forefront of all great thinking, but also the most terrifying place to have great thinking. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by the work of um, uh, Jonathan Haidt and his uh, his colleagues, and um, particularly the the book um, "The Coddling of the American Mind," and the way that they use uh, you know the elements and the cognitive distortions of CBT to kind of think about the way that you know people um can be upset about how dare you you must think that about all people with blonde hair this is me i'm sitting here with blonde hair it's not real um and i find that kind of interesting you know because how, how can psychology impact productivity how can good mental health mean work towards better productivity well i guess it all comes to your sense of self right if you feel good about you and you have a sense of certainty about what it is that you want to achieve in this day at work, in this day at work, next week, the week after, um, then I'm going to feel good about me and I'm going to feel really good about the work that I'm doing, what I'm achieving, my relationships with the people around me are going to be positive. I'm going to read that as positive because I'm looking at it now through a more positive mindset. Um, and I'm going to have this self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying my work, I'm enjoying my colleagues um, around me, uh, and so I find that fulfilling. You're talking about these cognitive distortions, right? So this is when people have these kind of negative thoughts about themselves, you know, things like I'm, I'm hopeless, you know, everyone hates me, I'm terrible at my job, right? And so if we have these cognitive distortions, then we kind of tend to read the world around us through that lens. 
So whenever something happens, you're looking for evidence to say, see, I am hopeless. See, those people talking at the water cooler, they're talking about me. Oh my gosh, look at this email. They're criticizing me. I might just sit in my office all day and not talk to anyone. Oh, no one's come to talk to me. Aren't I terrible? I go home, I jump on my public transport, I look around and I think people are looking at me funny. You know, well, oh my gosh, I look terrible. We, we through our cognitive distortions, we create a world about ourselves that may in fact not be real because that's the story we tell about ourselves. So this whole idea of CBT is saying, hang on a minute, what are these thoughts that you're having? And these thoughts that you're having are impacting on the way that you feel. And then the way that you feel and the thoughts that you're having impacts on the way you behave. So it's called the cognitive triangle, right? Yeah. Because they all work together. And it changes who you are at work and it changes how you Correct. perform. And uh, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy when you get passed yeah. over for a you know, promotion or more roles, more responsibilities. Like, see, they do think I'm useless. And then... You know, the resentment builds and you kind of feed into it and soon this it's hard though. It's hard to get your head around that you you might be contributing to this reality that you're just that is so distressing for you. Well, it's it's interesting. I've worked with a lot of clients, Osha, that get that aha moment. It's like suddenly the penny drops. Um and they then once they start to challenge those thoughts, they actually start to look and, and themselves experiment for the way that they might read how people treat them differently, you know, and you notice these small changes as a result of their changes. You know, it's quite, you're right, it's complex. It's not an easy thing, um, but it, it just changes someone's world so much just by saying, hang on, what am I thinking about myself right at this moment? It's a tricky one to get to because then you've got to start asking, well, why am I doing that? And then you got to, you got, you might get some, some pretty hard truths, but it's okay. You can do it by yourself. I, I, I tend to write mine down. I've got a notebook here somewhere. I still do it. I was doing it just before I got on the call with you because I heard some news earlier and I was like, where am I feeling so weird in my body? And I had to write it yeah. down. And I still do it. I still do it. What do you do to keep yourself um, tip top and allow you to be able to do what it is you do and possibly, you know, I don't know, psychologists have a robust you know, <laughs> care system where they Me have too. to run things up a tree so they don't get in trouble and, you know, they run yeah. their cases past other people so they get another, another opinion. But what about how do you keep yourself together enough to be able to get up and, you know, give your best at work every day? Two things. First of all, the profession requires every psychologist in this country to do 30 hours um, of professional development, minimum 10 hours is what we call peer consultation. So you have to spend time with another psychologist being able to discuss, you know, tricky cases, how you're, how you're feeling, how you're coping, working with those cases. It is just so valuable uh, to our profession. That's professionally. Then personally, it's all about self-care and the Portions of self-care and that looks different for everybody you know for me it might be going to the gym you know spending half an hour just really smashing it out at, at a gym that that's one thing um meeting up with friends on a weekend you know going for walks with my dog milo <laughs> 
you know, um, but you have to do it. You have to set aside time to look after yourself. And it, it's not, you shouldn't feel guilty about it, you know, but we learn that in psychology. Um, but the same applies for every community member. We, we need to take time out and say, hey, what am I going to do that is affirming for me? You know, I'll maybe go watch a movie. I might have dinner with friends. I might go for a walk to the park. We don't have to spend money to feel good. <laughs> we just have to find what works for us. And if, um, you know, people are having a think about, you know, maybe going into to uni, what is it makes it what makes it an appealing idea to come and work in healthcare? You know, at the end of the day, we are human human beings, and human beings love nothing more than being and working with other human beings. In in the main, in the main, because um, I'll get myself into trouble here, <laughs> where some people may not like that. But in healthcare, people generally are attracted um, because they want to work with others. They want to give back to community. They want to create change um, in people, positive change, whether it's psychological, physical, social, emotional, any of the health health um, professions. There's this kind of social human need um, to create change um, for someone else and positive change for someone else. I think that that's really what underlies it. And uh, it is... Uh, one of the things that really is the only thing that gives us sustainable happiness mm. is to help other people. Yeah, well, we, we, we're social beings. We're social beings, you know. <laughs> and, in fact, here's the thing, right? People who are depressed are often alone or feel alone. They could be surrounded by yeah. hundreds of people, but they are no. they are alone. You know, they feel alone and there's a loneliness um, that goes with that. I, I could chat to you all afternoon about uh, other kind of nerdy things, but um, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to speak oh, to me. Oh, like your absolute pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it as well. I'll show you look after yourself. That was Professor Judith Gulliver. Thanks again to Monash Uni who helped us get her on the show today. For more information about that, you can find all the links in the show notes and any, any further information that you can find in the show notes. That's where you can also find tickets to our Melbourne podcast shows, two podcast shows, one night, one ticket, February 22nd at the Malthouse Theatre. And then we are from the 27th of March uh, there for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival tickets there as well. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. Thank you for telling other people. If you need me, uh, you can DM me. Instagram is where you can find me. Links in the show notes. All the links are there. Big thank you to everyone that helped me make the show as well. Andy Ma on audio and video post-production. Thank you to Abby Benno who produced the show. Toe Hider for the music. Ben and Monica at OGTV for keeping the lights on and you for listening. Thank you so much. I'll see you Wednesday.